0: Hi, everybody. Just a note from me, Rhiannon, to say that my new supplements company, hurrah, is finally here. It's taken years to get this off the ground. Retrition Plus is evidence-based, rooted in science, focused on you, and we offer vitamin D sprays, folic acid spray, and a vegan multivitamin. So head over to retritionplus.com for supplements you can finally trust. Hello. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Food for Thought. This is the podcast that's on a mission and it's going to equip you with all of the evidence-based advice that you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, Sunday Times bestselling author of The Science of Nutrition. Please go check out my new book. I think it will help a lot of people out there and founder of Retrition London's leading private nutrition clinic. Now in each of the 12 episodes, I'll be joined by guests, all of whom are experts in their field, which is wonderful. So together we can all learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. In a society where we're still so strongly influenced by diet culture, it's it's no wonder really that people are trying to come up with an alternative, a weight loss solution, because they seem to be absolutely everywhere. But is there a way that we can do this by adjusting the way we think about food and the way we eat? Now, this is a conversation in this week's food for Thought that I've wanted to have for so long with Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson, She's a New York Sunday Times bestseller, and I have to say that her views and her training are very different to the exposure that we have in the UK. So we discuss how to reframe your approach to eating and understand how your mindset can help with sustainable weight loss. It's an enlightening conversation, and I really hope that you all enjoy it. Hello, Susan. Hi, Rhiannon. So good to be here. Oh, no. Thank you so much. All the way from New York. Um, Lovely to have this conversation today. I think the fact that we know that, I mean, I mean, the stat I've got here, Susan, correct me if I'm wrong, is that around 80% of people will not maintain their weight loss, you know, long term. Um, it's, It's quite big. And I think it's something a lot of people would really love to hear a little bit more about and what they can do. So let's start the conversation by saying, What do you think about this? What's the driving factor?
1: Um, I think the driving factor is that most weight loss programs that people are trying aren't built for uh, people to be able to sustain them. They really don't have longevity in mind. Um, And I don't think, uh, you know, really until Bright Line Eating came around, I don't think the code had been cracked on sustainable weight loss. And if you think about it, a lot of the big weight loss companies, um, they make their money off recidivism. People just keep coming back and paying yeah. initia- initiation fees over and over and over again, joining and rejoining. Um, there's this great market research report that comes out every other year. It costs several thousand dollars to buy it, so most people don't have uh, access to this information. but. Um, in the United States, which is where I live, half of people are dieting. They won't tell you they're dieting all of them because dieting's Mm. gone out of fashion, but they're spending money trying to lose weight or trying to change their eating to get healthier, to take off pounds, et cetera. Um, half of people. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, a hundred and something million people. And on average, they try four or five new attempts each year. So Mm. I, I think it's actually higher than 80%. I don't know where the 80%, but you know, there's different ways to look at it, but most pounds that get lost get regained within a year or two for sure. Um, yeah, of course.
0: And that's like you said with data, you know, it's how many people actually report this and how many people we can get to, you know, get on board and get in our studies and in our stats and the, the number must be more. I agree with you completely. So let's go a little bit further then. So we know a lot of people are constantly thinking about this. And I know from my experience in my nutrition clinic, you know, it gets a lot of people down, it can really impact their mood. And some of the key things that clients often say to me, which is very, um, I think it's the language used, obviously. So they will say, Oh, I feel like I'm addicted to food. So I guess we should start by asking, what is actually classed as a food addiction because there's two camps here there's there's people that avidly believe that it it's not the same as drugs or a pathway with alcohol and and then then you've got another camp of people that, that are saying it is and i know the education that we have here is that food is not classified as an addiction so i would love to hear your viewpoints on this
1: i have to tell you it is entirely possible as a matter of fact factual and clear that people's brains become addicted to the hyperpalatable foods that we have in our current food environment exactly through the same neuropathways that are addicting them to cocaine, heroin, alcohol and all the rest. It's the pathway of dopamine downregulation in the nucleus accumbens and when you eat a donut it it floods the nucleus accumbens with too much dopamine just like if you snorted a line of cocaine. And over time, those dopamine uh, receptors downregulate, which means they become thinner, less responsive, less numerous. And what that leaves the person in is a state of um, dis ease, discomfort, itchiness, um, bleakness until they get their next fix and this is what's leading people to, you know and it's not just sugar, it's also uh, processed uh, flour and starches and things like that. so it's chips, it's pizza, it's um, muffins and lattes and all the things that bagels and all the things that people are uh, eating the sugar and flour processed foods um, and it, it is literally literally addictive. So, you know, I'm so excited to talk to you because these days mostly I talk with people who are very clear that food is physiologically addictive. And I know that there's a bunch of people who are saying, well, food addiction is silly. That's like air addiction. You can't be addicted to breathing. You need to breathe to live. And you do, of course, need to eat to live, but you don't need to eat donuts to live. Um, And they're Mm. not natural foods, right, Um, at all. So I'm so excited to get to have this conversation with you because I know there are people who are still thinking food addiction isn't a real thing, literally, specifically, that it's it's either non-existent or it's a metaphor. And I just need to clear that up. Like, absolutely not. It is truly physiologically addictive.
0: Well, that's why we've got you here on the podcast today. We always want to share... The balanced, you know, two-side equation. Like you said, there are people for and against everything. And I find that absolutely fascinating. And it makes perfect sense because if you think about the world of food that we live in now and the complete and utter change of environment, you know, for a lot yes. of people, they will consume just processed food now. Yes. You know, people are not cooking from scratch. And it makes sense that this is how people feel. And like you said, they can be instantly dismissed sometimes. Um, which isn't right. So do you think our minds play a huge role here then in the approach to how how we eat our food? Bearing in mind, we know we've got this neurological connection here. We've got this research that suggests this is happening. So what can we do about it? Is it a mindset thing? How do people go about dealing with this in their everyday life?
1: Yeah, so what I find is that the Thoughts, the thinking, the mindset, comes from the physiology more than the other way around. It's really not possible, advisable, feasible, realistic for someone who's developed this addiction over time to sort of think their way out of it. What really needs to ha- any more than the person who's addicted to heroin, alcohol, cocaine can sort of you know uh, shift their thinking and affect. Um, a cure or a lot of progress what what's needed really is to stop exposing the brain to these addictive substances and then a lot of the what what seems like counterproductive thoughts fade away on their own they were actually generated by the physiology so what's really interesting is when you look at my my phd is in brain and cognitive sciences Mm. and when you look at the relationship between thoughts, will, volition, um, intention, willpower, and, uh, and physiology, what you see in domains as primitive and biological as eating, breathing, sex, right? These things are hardwired in at the deepest core levels. We're talking hypothalamus, brainstem, absolutely primitive. And what you see is that thoughts come up being driven by the physiological needs. So here's mm. an example. Try to hold your breath for longer than is possible. Most people can't hold their breath for two mm. minutes, right? Do a thought experiment with yourself and imagine that, imagine that you know, um, you know, ten million euros were sitting in a bag for you uh, in a locker somewhere, and all you had to do was hold your breath for two or five minutes or whatever, and it was yours. Well, what's going to happen as you set a timer and try to hold your breath for longer than you can is you can't do it. And thoughts will start to come in as you're holding your breath. It's similar if you try to hold your breath while running up fifteen flights of stairs. You can't do it. Mm. And thoughts will come in saying, Well, I'd better give up, or I, you know, maybe I should just breathe now, or okay, this is getting hard i i don't know how much longer i'm gonna make it i think i'd better breathe and you're not generating those thoughts your brain is generating those thoughts right like you want to hold your breath and get 10 million euros you're very (laughs) clear about that right um so what's what's hard about food is that the time course is longer so the brain will start to trick you into eating more or different or more processed foods or whatever Um, over the course of weeks and months rather than seconds and minutes. So it's harder to realize that on a Friday night when you turn to your partner and you say, let's just get a pizza, um, that that is the same phenomenon. That thought came into your mind uh, driven by the same sorts of processes that said, well, I'd better just breathe now, right? Um, Because the brain is demanding what it needs.
0: Yeah, which is why one thing that really frustrates us is when people have had bad experience by somebody, I don't know, questioning willpower and those sorts of things. But what you quite rightly said is there's a physiological thing happening here and it's not as simple, is it, as telling yourself, well, I don't want to feel like this anymore. I don't want to feel addicted to this food. Therefore, I'm just going to switch it off because, as you said, it's almost hardwired. It's it's it does go deep.
1: It does. Willpower is a very interesting thing, Rhiannon. Willpower is governed by this tiny little spot in the brain called the the anterior cingulate cortex. And it sits right behind the forehead, right behind Mm -hmm. the prefrontal cortex. And unfortunately, it's just a very busy hub. There's a lot of things that the anterior cingulate cortex is trying to manage at the same time, including resisting temptations, right? Mm -hmm. Like willpower and um, making decisions regulating emotional responses, regulating task performance. And this poor little spot gets fatigued after just 15 minutes of intensive use. So if you wow. spend 15 minutes checking your email and you know trying to decide, am I replying to this? Reply all, reply now, am I storing it? Am I leaving it in my inbox? And you're going through this, you know, processing a bunch of email, and then you drive home through traffic. And then you're trying to decide what you're doing for dinner, that part of the brain that would resist temptation is is already shot, it's not showing up for you at all. Mm. And and hence, you turn to your partner and say, let's order takeout, right? Let's order a pizza. Let's, you know, let's just go to this, let's go get some beer and, you know, nachos and stuff. And (laughs) so that decision came, um, through what I call, you know, you're falling into the willpower gap, essentially, Mm -hmm. you just don't have any willpower uh, showing up for you. Back to your initial point about weight regain. Mm -hmm. This is the issue of execution over the long term. Most food plans or ways of eating, whether they're diets, or they're just lifestyle sort of healthy approaches or whatever, they don't factor in that your willpower at any given moment isn't going to be there at all and so it's really not of an issue about do you know the right things to eat most people know Mm -hmm. that they should be eating salad and blueberries and you know you know if you give people flashcards, you know of different foods and say should you be eating this you know they score really high they know that they shouldn't be eating pizza right they know um, so it's not really an issue of education, it's an issue of execution over the long term. And really the way around the willpower gap is something called automaticity, habit. You've got to make your eating kind of like your brushing uh, of teeth, right? Rihanna, do you brush mm-hmm. your teeth? I don't wanna put you on the spot, but I will, <laughs> do you brush your teeth twice a day?
0: Yes, I definitely do. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and 95% of people do, not everyone does. 95 is, oh, no, we're missing 5%, (laughs) wow. But Rhiannon, do you brush your teeth before you go to bed? really always, even if you're sick, even if you're traveling, even if you've been out on New Year's Eve all night. Na- Susan, you know, I'm one
0: of those obsessive people. I always carry yeah, in my hand luggage on airplanes and yeah, I'm one of those rare breeds, but I'm sure lots of people when they go out on a night out, I mean, I'm a mum now, it hasn't happened in many years for me, but I'm sure people that go out don't bother. I Yeah, I, I see where you're coming Some from.
1: Some people, you'd be surprised though, uh, uh, brushing of teeth g- gets done often, whether you're sick, whether you're, wow. you know, really Good, uh, <laughs> pretty flawlessly. Now, you know, you might miss sometimes, but uh, I'll tell you what people don't have is they don't have a sticky note on their mirror trying to, you know, saying, don't forget to brush your teeth. And they're not hiring life coaches, by and large, saying, you know, I want to do better with my teeth brushing, how come I don't have how come I don't love myself enough to brush my teeth, right? Mm. Most people are not doing that either. Certainly not with the kinds of numbers of people who are, you know, hiring life coaches and saying, how come I don't love myself enough to eat well, you know, Mm. um, enough to stop this overeating. So, The part of the brain that's governing our teeth brushing behavior is the basal ganglia. And this is a little complex that uh, helps helps us execute automatic behavior sequences. They're triggered by a certain time of day, a certain location, a certain sequences of action, and suddenly an automatic behavior sequence kicks in and it just gets the job done. So people who know how to drive a car um, mm. they have an automatic behavior sequence for putting their car in, in reverse or whatever, backing out of the driveway, turning around and pulling out or whatever. Getting dressed, we all have, the basal ganglia governs us getting dressed. We just put mm. on clothes in a certain order, we don't think about it. Usually when we get in the shower, we've got an order of things that we, we wash certain body parts in certain orders and our hair and so forth with certain products in a certain routine, right? Is this making sense?
0: It's making sense. And what I'm wondering straight away in my head is, but there is no like immediate sense of reward after you've brushed your teeth. Do you see what I mean? Like these types of programmed behavioral tasks, like you said, we don't, we do it and we don't need the reward. Like we don't need the, that high in the brain, do we? When we, when we do these tasks.
1: True, true. Uh, Right. We just need to get the job done, right? We just need to get the job done. But it turns out, yeah. Yeah, it turns out those same circuits can be recruited to govern our eating behavior. Amazing. You know, yeah. When I come, so, so my morning routine is set up so that when I, you know, come downstairs, I get out my digital food scale, I put my bowl on it, and I start shaking my oats into it until it gets to one one ounce. You know, I've I've tried weighing my food in grams; it's maddening. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> grams are way too small. You know, I'm not gonna like take a flake of oats out of my bowl. So, anyway. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then, you know, I'm gonna, so I have a very structured routine that's the same as brushing my teeth. And before I know it, um, a breakfast that's in alignment with my values, you know, including a lot of blueberries and flax seeds and all the things that I wanna be eating because they're, I've learned they're so super healthy. um, It's already eaten and I haven't thought any more about it than I think about my hot shower, right? It's done and I just move along with my day. This is one reason why I recommend people eat three meals a day as opposed Mm. to snacking and grazing all day long. Mm. Not only uh, is the time-restricted feeding literature teaching us that it's actually way healthier to confine your eating to fewer sessions and allow a good long time in between for a fasting window. Um, So it's healthier in that way, but it's also way more likely to produce successful results in terms of um, helping you navigate the willpower gap when you're out and about. Because if you think about it, Alice, as compulsive and and sort of uh, fastidious as you are around teeth brushing, it might be a different story if suddenly you had to be brushing and flossing six times a day, right? As Mm. intentional as you might be, you might find that you you miss some of those or you don't have your supplies with you sometimes, yeah. you know, as you're out and about during your day. Six times a day would be hard to get right. You'd find yeah. yourself kind of scrambling. Yeah. Um, but two times a day, three times a day, now this is more manageable.
0: I'm still blown away by what you said earlier as well about the 15 minutes of um, <laughs> decision-making in life. Of solid Everything. willpower, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it makes so much sense when you think about how easily distracted and when you want to procrastinate and you just really just don't want to make those decisions and I know you've written a couple of books about you know changing mindsets and I'm finding all of this absolutely fascinating I'm sure our listeners are too because it's just not discussed as you said we education around food is discussed but people are not discussing these interactions why do you think the work obviously you're doing your bit to get this information out there but why do you think this hasn't been taken on? I don't know to a mass kind of public health level. Is it still just very difficult to explain to the general public, or is it that it's in the infancy of science? What? How, why do you think these messages are not in mainstream yet?
2: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live, from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind.
1: oh great question um there's something uh to be said for the infancy of science hypothesis mm. there yeah it, a lot of these ideas are relatively new and uh when the research on the neuroscience of food addiction started to really um uh, uh grow and amass and become very clear Unfortunately, there's been blowback from people, I, I, I fear, so probably a lot of the same uh, schools of thought where you got educated, right? Yeah, With, I don't, w- yeah. What's your education around um, around eating? A nutritionist or a counselor? Yeah, yeah, so
0: degree in nutrition and health and master's degree in um, obesity risks prevention. Yeah, nutritional science, that's that's the background, like dietetic pathway. So yes, yeah, exactly. That's the school well, of thought
1: yeah well um so the history is that um in the 1970s uh anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa got diagnosed as eating disorder you know formalized Mm -hmm. as as diagnoses for the first time in the dsm right and the treatment for them uh got sort of put together i think in in, you know, a logical way of like, well, let's look how normal eaters eat, you know, people who don't have disordered Mm -hmm. eating. And then let's look at you know, so what we need to do is we need to uh, strip these eating disordered uh, patients uh, of their food rules, because people with anorexia and bulimia would show up Mm -hmm. with all kinds of you know, I only eat this many calories, and I don't eat these foods, and I don't eat those foods, and I etc. And no food rules became sort of the foundation of mm. treatment for eating disorders. And then um, when you start to look at food addiction and what it might mean that one of the first things that comes up is some sort of abstinence from processed or addictive foods, right?
2: Mm. And
1: it's it, that's a food rule essentially. And it's very threatening to all these people with master's in psychology and master's in counseling, master's in nutrition and so forth, who've been educated in a moderation in all things sort Mm -hmm. of balanced approach. There's nothing wrong with having a cookie here and there. If you, you know, and, and I don't, I don't demonize or pathologize cookies. I love cookies. I wish I could eat nothing but cookies, frankly. I mean, they're (laughs) incredible. Uh, And, you know, I also, as someone who's been clean and sober from, you know, and we didn't get into my story here, but I come from addiction. And I mean, Mm. very truly crystal meth addiction, speed addiction, crack cocaine addiction, prostitution, dropped out of high school. That was my resume at the age of 20. Um, and so as someone who's lived my life in loops from the crack house out to prostitute and back into the crack house, I, I feel um, qualified to speak about what addiction feels like
2: yeah. in an
1: experiential way. And also now that I've gone and gotten my credentials from some of the best institutions in these areas in the world, you know, from the brain perspective, mm-hmm. I got to tell you, Rhiannon, it's the same thing. I found wow. sugar and flour harder to kick than crack cocaine by a lot by a lot so um just back to your question of like why isn't this more mainstream you know the 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 nutrition field is very corrupted by Mm. big food agribusiness in the united Mm. states i don't know in europe um, if it's the same way but in the united states it is horribly corrupt we've got um, we've got the agency in the federal government that is charged with the USDA that's charged with uh, setting nutrition policy it's the same agency as the agency that's supposed to uh, protect and advance the financial interests of uh the makers of high fructose corn syrup uh the yeah. you know the meat and dairy industry the yeah. uh you know the 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 makers of um of uh, genetically modified wheat that yeah. goes into all the white bread and all the, the donuts it and all the things. So it's definitely very foods.
0: different here, Susan. Yeah, but it, it's, I mean, yeah, we don't even have high fructose corn syrup in Europe. It's banned in the UK. So it's like, it sounds, It it's definitely not great here either. But yeah, I hear you. It sounds like it's governed by ulterior motives, really.
1: Yeah, it is. I hear the UK is about to put a watershed on um, commercials, including mm-hmm. on the internet, uh, for processed foods, for snack yeah. foods, for junk food. Yeah, there's big movements.
0: Yeah, there's big movements. There are. This is why I really wanted you on this podcast. I was so excited. I know we've had to go back and forth with dates and things, but I really wanted to hear your opinion and you sharing your story. Can I just say how inspiring it is for me to hear, first of all, what you've been through and how you've come out the other side and where you're at and what you're choosing to do now and help others or just spread a message because for the life of me, I can't understand why there are lots of different schools of thought, but hence the name of this podcast, Food for Thought, why can't we discuss them all and let people make up their minds? People have a right to a decision. And I love that you've just discussed that because you know we have a big problem here, Susan. Just to go off topic again a little bit, but where the government messaging actually isn't so great when it comes to oh, we'll just eat less and
1: move more. Do what's your thought on that one? (laughs) well it would it would be great if it worked <laughs> yeah right exactly <laughs> it makes so much sense logically i think we just can't we can't let it go because it just seems like it should work right yeah it just seems yeah. like the answer unfortunately it's really not i mean if you if you look at con, I, t- I tell this to people a lot like look at conventional wisdom around how to eat how to handle a weight issue what's healthy right eat all things in moderation Be sure to move your body lots. Um, you know, eat uh like three meals and two snacks a day or six small meals a day. Make sure you're keeping your metabolism revved all through the day. Um, you know, this is conventional wisdom when it comes to uh food and weight. And the reality is that um, you know, you were mentioning upwards of 80% of people will regain their weight, but that's assuming they lost weight in the first place, right? Uh, Most people are certainly not losing all their excess weight. They're starting some approach and they don't get where they're they're aiming to go. They, They stop or drop out at some point along the way. Very, very few people get down to what they're considering to be their goal weight. And of those who do most will gain back the weight. If you add that all together, it's something like, ah uh, ninety nine certainly of people who are starting out with obesity, literally ninety nine percent of people will not get down into a right-sized body. um ninety nine percent of people. So if you look at um, you know, some other area, let's talk about universities, right? Mm-hmm. What would we think about the university system if they were only graduating one percent of the of the people who enrolled, right? and And if the other ninety nine percent, We're dropping out and re-enrolling four or five times a year. They were looking like crazy people, dropping out, re-enrolling, dropping out, re-enrolling. And at the end of the day, only 1% of people graduated. We wouldn't think, what a bunch of lazy people who just need to study more, Mm. you know, and need to be convinced that they need to try harder. We would think, what is broken about that system? Yeah, yeah. It just
0: doesn't seem the way that things are so black and white in the way people look at things?
1: Yeah, well, I, I got to say, I really enjoy um, spreading a different approach. I mean, so yeah. so what I say about, I, I gave very simple rules of thumb, right? Eat everything in moderation, eat several small meals a day, make sure you move your body lots. Well, let's look at those. What I tell people to do is to um, learn what kind of brain they have when it comes to addictive foods Mm. and addiction in general people tend to know if they have an addictive personality which is a thing there are personality traits that are associated with addictive susceptibility in the general population one-third of people are highly susceptible to addictions in general one-third are moderately susceptible and one-third are not susceptible at all i mean to heroin addiction i mean to cigarette nicotine addiction they're not susceptible Mm. at all um Literally, and people say, "Well, you you know, if you give anyone shots of heroin over a long enough time, they'll get addicted." And the answer is, no. You 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 uh, send people home with pills, opiate yeah. pills, opioid yeah. pills after back surgery and they don't all become pill heads right they don't so, it's so
0: interesting because it explains sorry to interject but it explains the all or nothing mindset that we get a lot with with nutrition clients you know they'll come in they say i can literally go and do everything right now perfectly but then it's not sustainable it's a very all or nothing does that link into that kind of um
1: you know, addictive personality. Yeah, yeah. so people who've, who've developed an addictive relationship with food, what happens is they've developed a, a part of themselves, it's sort of like an archetype, but it's a, it's a part of themselves that I like to call the food controller. And the food controllers, it can be very perfectionistic. And what they've got inside them is a battle between their food controller and their food indulger. And the food indulger wants to indulge and binge and take comfort in food and so forth. And with that war going on, it's often a very extreme seesaw between one extreme or the other. They're either eating everything as much as they want, whenever they want, or uh, they're following a plan perfectly. But that type of perfection with the food controller in charge, it really annoys the rest of the system. And, and, and there are parts of the system that feel like this isn't sustainable, I can't do this forever. Uh, And there's also sort of a negotiator food indulger that will just sort of try to play the angles and push the envelope and just try to get you to eat a little bit here. And then and then it's often the slipperiest slope where the the food indulger takes over altogether, and you just binge into oblivion. So we see that polarity a lot with people that we work with, and we teach them. Mm. uh, The language I've just been using is from a modality in psychology called IFS, or internal family systems. And Mm -hmm. you can use IFS therapy even on yourself to sort of learn the parts of you that are active in your food dynamic and overcome it.
0: Oh, I'm just thinking of so many people now that I know would
1: benefit from potentially exploring that further for themselves. Yeah. My third book, Resume, goes into that, exactly that in tons of detail. So it's called Resume: the powerful reframe to end the crash and burn cycle uh, of food addiction. So just back to the the three things we were talking about, we were talking about uh, eat all foods in moderation. I say, no, find out where you are uh, in terms of food addiction susceptibility. So there's a really easy quiz you can take that'll tell you on a scale from one to 10, how susceptible your brain is to the pull of those addictive foods, the processed foods. You can go to foodaddictionquiz.com, foodaddictionquiz.com. Now, on a scale from one to 10, if you're higher than a five, certainly if you're higher than a seven or an eight, oh my goodness, you have got to take addiction into account when you're thinking of it, because what happens when you have addiction in play is scratching the itch just makes it itchier. You can't mm. have a little and think that you're going to be satisfied, right? The mm. one piece of pizza experiment, the one cookie experiment, it never goes well, right? You, <laughs> you think you're going to have one and then you have more and more and more. So if, but if you're lower than a five, well then by all means, adopt an approach of moderation. It is true for some people that a bite of dessert after a fancy meal is all they need. And they just want a little of that sweet taste and it scratches the itch and they're satisfied. So it's not a one size fits all thing, but for some people, um, eating all foods in moderation is a recipe for a lifetime of frustration and failure. It just is. And just like quitting smoking, quitting eating sugar, for example, is um possible and after a while you don't think about it anymore. You're done. You're you you don't you're a person who doesn't eat sugar. If you take the real deep identity approach. Like I'm a person who doesn't eat sugar and I don't think about not eating sugar. Just like I quit smoking years and years ago, I don't think about not I don't think about cigarettes anymore. I don't. So that's the first one. The other one was move your body a bunch and I say, well, uh there's very solid research on this. Exercise does mm-hmm. not make you thin mm-hmm. and it's all about the food when it comes to your weight, oh, your body composition. It's yeah, all I about agree. the food, and so given that automatic habits are the way to to uh, uh, ensure your proper execution over the long term of what you're really hoping to accomplish, don't start exercising or ramp up your exercising or think about moving at all. Really, as a matter of fact, rest a bunch while you're giving yourself a few months to get your food really automatic. Adopt a really clear plan like you would find at Bright Line Eating, a really clear plan, and then give yourself a few months to make the habits solidify. Then later, I'm I'm an advocate of exercise. I know everything it does that's great for you, I get it. But uh, it will be too much for your poor brain, your willpower system, if you're trying to do both at the same time before the food part is automatic.
0: I think it's one of the biggest misconceptions we definitely get in the clinic, is that people are I've been exercising every single day, or I've been going to the gym, or I've up this and I've up that, but the diet hasn't really changed. And that's, people struggle with the dietary changes, I think, far more than the exercise variety, and exercise is not the solution for body fat loss. I'm so glad you've just said that as well, because yeah. it's really hammered home as a public health message. And it's it, exercise should just be seen to make you feel good, right? It should just be longevity. Like you feel, and, I mean, well, yeah.
1: yeah lo- I mean, so many things, right? We could list yeah. the, the yeah. benefits <laughs> of exercise. Like, we could sing the praises of exercise all day. It's kind of shocking and ironic that the only thing it doesn't help you do is lose weight,
0: is the thing um, they're saying. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And there's actually something called the compensation effect, which is after you've gone to the gym three or four times in a week, your brain tells you, well, now I get to eat a bunch of French fries and a Big Mac yes. because I've just worked out a bunch. And believe me, with, a, with French Fries and a Big Mac and a Frosty—you've just completely obliterated the whole week's worth of workouts when it comes to fat loss, right? So, What's a Frosty? I have to ask you. What is a Frosty? Oh, it's like a shake, like a, um, like like liquid ice cream drunk through a straw. Those
0: wow. Things. All right. Yeah. So yeah, we don't have we don't have those here, Susan. Oh well, I'm sure you
1: do in your fast food restaurants. You're just calling them something else. I yeah,
0: probably. Yeah.
1: Probably. Yeah. Sorry.
0: Your third. So your third point: three
1: meals a day. Yeah, we already talked about that, right? It's it, it it turns out to not make much difference actually, whether you eat your calories, uh, if it's the same amount of food in six meals or three, when it comes mm-hmm. to fat loss, it is not true that your body needs your metabolism being stoked by food all day long to keep mm-hmm. your metabolism revving. That's been disproven clearly. Yeah. Uh, your metabolism functions equivalently, whether you eat the same amount of food in two meals or six meals or three meals or yeah. four meals, doesn't matter. Um, however, like we've said, there are health benefits to giving your body a long fasting window. So not eating a bite after dinner and waiting till, you know, a little later in the morning to eat your mm. first bite of breakfast is healthy. Um, but from my perspective, all that's kind of beside the point. What I really focus on is the fact that you you your food, your eating won't be automatizable. I may have coined that word, automatizable. <laughs> Go into it, just explain to our listeners. (laughs) Yeah, like able to be made automatic. So like brushing teeth so that you're not having to think about it if you're doing it too many times a day. Like twice or three times a day is all people can manage to to make automatic. But breakfast, lunch and dinner, uh, you really can make those pretty automatic because there's Mm -hmm. a, a time in your day that's cued very similarly to getting dressed and showering and, um, brushing teeth, right? Just slide your breakfast in there somewhere.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: dinner time, often there's an evening routine where you can make your dinner automatic. And then we have this magical midday pause where mm. people stop to eat something in the middle of the day, that's it. Breakfast, lunch, yeah. and dinner, those are automatizable. The rest is too willy nilly and mm. you're likely to license all sorts of errant nonsense when your your yeah. food indulger part is telling you that now you need a midday snack, but there's nothing around but a vending machine to get something. I mean from. I, love, go I love I well. love
0: that. And it's also is it I guess the social aspect of food as well. If you're following a three meal a day, that's like your approach. You know, we've got all this data on the Mediterranean diet and lifestyles, but it really is like a family occasion. People just wait yes. and then sit down at dinner and enjoy enjoy the moment there's a lot to be said for that and i feel we've lost connection with how we eat
1: totally and and a lot has disintegrated with the disintegration of meal structure you know in Mm. terms of family bonding and connection and in terms of health
0: yeah yeah i completely agree yeah, I know. I've, I've got my my toddler and we always try and eat, um I mean, he eats at really different times at the moment. But when we get to that point, when he's older, I can't wait to constantly have sit down meals with him all the time. Um, I'm just aware of how much I want to get into this episode. And I have to ask you about your book. So I've got a copy of Rezoom and you talk about a crash and burn approach in there. And I just, I really want to go in depth from let's just talk about it of how, <sighs> how it affects us physically, mentally, and how to get out of the cycle, that sort of thing. Let's just delve into that before we take questions from our listeners.
1: Yes, totally. So the crash and burn cycle is what a lot of people especially people who are drawn to the bright line eating approach or who are aware that they have a more addictive relationship with food it's what they've been doing right they start mm. and i used to do this all the time um i was obese by my mid 20s and really from the age of 20 to the age of 28 but i started dieting when i was 14 so here's here was here's the the pattern that i used to follow yes. that so many people follow you start off so strong with a new yep. approach and you're clear you right down all your measurements and you've got your goal and maybe there's a date that you're trying to a wedding or something or maybe it's just you're going to get your act together this time and you feel really good about the plan and uh you start off and success is riding high you're doing great your weight is coming off you feel fabulous and then there's some sort of time warp thing that happens either you eat something off the plan and it all falls apart right away, or you you start to make some exceptions and before you know it, you realize that you're off the plan. And there's some sort of panic that sets in it at that point where you realize it's all it's it it's all ruined it's all broken it's it's not working anymore and you crash and burn down into the danger and destruction zone you're you're binging now you're uh, overeating um maybe there's some comfort in it that you're like, well, now I'm back in the zone where at least I get to eat what I want when I want it and uh, I like that part at least right and often there's some numbness that sets in and some some um, some time dysphoria, like you lose track of how long it's been happening before you know it, you've gained back all your weight. And for me, Mm -hmm. I would often need to get really, really miserable before I'd be willing to try a new approach again because it was scary because I had a part of me that was really afraid that I would fail. Uh, so it was. It I had to get very sick and tired of being sick and tired before I would be willing to start and try something new again. But then when I would, I would launch out with lots of enthusiasm and usually start a new plan. But sometimes it means going back to a plan I've done before that I had some success on initially. Before I launch off, yeah, same thing happens. Uh, there's a point where where it's broken, and then I crash and burn down and gain back all my weight. This cycle can go on. Uh, for years and decades, decades.
0: Mm, yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Everything you've said there, I'm just nodding my head because you know you see it for so many people, and it's so common. And like you just said, you often revert back to something that you've done before. A lot of people we have aspire to be the lowest weight they've ever seen on the scales in their lives, even though that may not be an appropriate target for them right now. And we know, we know you can't base health off a number. Um, there's, there's just so many aspects to think of here, but it does lead me on to questions from our listeners, really, for you as well. Um, and first of all, I guess it's how, how to break out of it. So Daria has said, why is it when I'm tired, I eat more unhealthy foods, I just can't stop and get out of this cycle?
1: That was Daria? Yes, Daria. Yeah, so Daria, we talked about this a little earlier in this episode, that's the willpower gap, right? Mm. When you're tired, your anterior cingulate cortex, which uh, governs your willpower and helps you resist temptation, it's shot, it's not showing up for you at all. And so the part of your brain that would support you in not eating, uh, all those junk foods, uh, it's its nowhere to be found. And so you have no resistance really. Um, so the way to get out of that is to adopt something uh, like Bright Line Eating, that's a structured plan that takes the addictive foods out of the equation so that your brain isn't triggered anymore and uh, sets up a plan of breakfast, lunch and dinner where you're really clear about what you're gonna eat and you're writing down your food the night before allowing for willpower to be taken out of the equation. You already know what you're gonna eat the next day, and you're not making choices on the fly. So if you're not making choices on the fly, it really doesn't matter if you're tired or what have you. You have one choice, that's to eat the meal that you wrote down the night before. And when you have a Mm. lot of good support, Then that could go really well. Support, like, you know, we teach you all this in Brightline Eating. It really takes an integrated system. It's not just one thing that leads to success, it's a lot of things working together in your favor.
0: Yeah, which is why, remember, you haven't failed a diet. It's the diet, as you said at the beginning, really, that fails you. You know, you're t- we're talking about are you getting enough sleep? Do you have a support system around you? What, what is your, I don't know, what is your kitchen like at home? What resources? What's your income? There's just so many things. Um. So thank thank you for answering that, Susan. Now, Anna has said, what are your thoughts on pre-made calorie-controlled meals versus home cooking?
1: Yeah, Anna, great question. Um. I know there are more and more pre-made meals these days, um, but I I fear that the ingredients might not be very high quality, and there might be a lot of processed foods in there. So, for example, a lot of diet companies have frozen meals out there that mm. are really processed foods. You know, pasta with a creamy sauce, and they've they've somehow um, jiggered it and figured it so that it's it's low calorie, but that doesn't yeah. mean that it's low in terms of its addiction value for your brain. And if you're eating mm. foods that are high in reward value, meaning the taste and palatability is manufactured just so that it's going to keep your brain all lit up and making you want more. Like, but you know, the the famous one is like Weight Watchers one point brownies or whatever. <laughs> um, Uh, that is going to lead you to eat more food later, downstream, right? And so there really is no substitute uh, for actually buying whole real food at the grocery store. And as a mom of three with 33 Mm -hmm. employees and a very busy life, I understand (laughs) that time is a factor and sometimes I just don't have it in me to cook, but there are ways Mm -hmm. to get whole real foods into your system um, and streamline the preparation. So that's generally my recommendation.
0: Thank you, exactly. Yeah, we're well aware that it's not, you know, no one's perfect, but there are ways that you can definitely make a difference to your health and do your bit. I love that answer, thank you. I'm just trying to pick the Best next question. Oh, so this is a fascinating mindset. Definitely one for you, Susan, this question. She said, Laura has said, I self-sabotage my diet and I get caught up on those short-lived goals. I need to change. What advice do you have to help stop this?
1: Yes, Laura. So uh, what's going on right now is a war of your parts. So, mm-hmm. right now you're thinking of yourself as one sort of unified uh, being, right? With with one mind, one one soul, one uh, uh, one way of being. And Socrates was the first one to point out that one mind cannot both want and not want at the same time. Therefore, we are all at least two. And what I want to point out is you're not really sabotaging your goals in the sense of your highest self, your best highest self isn't. What's going on is a part of you that's developed, um, that's developed a strategy which has helped a lot. It's gotten you through a lot of pain. It's a food indulger part of you that's learned that food can provide some comfort, some numbness, some entertainment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. and also probably other parts that are scared, scared of failing again, wounded parts that have been through this food, weight, rigmarole for a long, long time. Uh, essentially, what I recommend, Laura, is learn about your parts inside you and understand where the sabotage is coming from. And that's exactly what my third book, Resume, will teach you to do. And Resume is spelled R-E-Z-O-O-M. Mm. R-E-Z-O-O-M, like do it fast, get back on track yes. fast.
0: I love that. I love that. Thank you, Susan. And um, I wish we had time for more questions, but we're going to move on to our fact or fiction round. Okay. Question one, healthier foods are more expensive.
1: Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes facts, sometimes <laughs> fiction. Not always. Love Bananas it. are pretty cheap. Cheese and rice are pretty cheap. Organic raspberries are very expensive.
0: (laughs) There you you go. Um, eating what you really want time to time is important. Uh, (laughs) It's tough, isn't it for
1: you?
0: (laughs) Um, skipping breakfast will help you to lose weight faster. Fiction. Everybody's weight loss journey is different. Fact. Love, quick weight loss will be easier to maintain long term.
1: That turns out to be true. Fact: There's there's research on that um, that crazy. people who lose their weight faster are more likely to keep it off. Shockingly, there's wow. studies on that.
0: There you go. It takes sixty six days for a new habit to form. <laughs>
1: That's fact, but uh, 66 days for someone who's tried a new behavior to report that it feels automatic on average, but the range was like 10 to 356 or something. (laughs) But 66 on average is true.
0: There we go. Um, Stress uh, makes it difficult to lose weight. True.
1: Yeah, weight loss—it'll keep you from yeah. high cortisol. Yeah. Will keep you from losing weight all day. Yep.
0: Yep. Hundred percent agree with that one. Weight loss is about mind over matter.
1: Fiction. It's more about brain over environment. Is, is what it Love
0: is. Love it. There you go. Skinny supplements are very effective.
1: Ugh. Fiction. <laughs>
0: Um, Health and well-being is more than just about our weight.
1: Oh, fact. Fact, 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 fact.
0: You are not a member. No, exactly. Well that, I'm really sad because that's the end of the fact or fiction round and you did it so beautifully. Um, (laughs) It does nearly wrap up the episode but we always finish uh, with a take-home message of food for thought Susan and I'm actually really devastated that That's all we have time for today because I feel like we've really just skimmed the surface and, you know, there's. I guess my take home to start to start for everybody is that there, there's no quick fix and it's about figuring out who you are what I love that you said earlier is about you really need to think about what type of personality you are how your you know your why how you respond to food I love that and I love the information you had and the different approaches that you've offered today for us especially reassuring people that feel you know they have a food addiction that there is yeah. something going on there because I think it can isolate. Isolate so many people when they don't, they don't get heard or listened to, and you are so much more than a number. And food is about sleep; it's it's about our lifestyle, our health is about all these factors, our environment, our support network, our budget. But Susan, you are going to give a far more concise take home message, I'm sure, than I today on food for thought. What would be your one little take home that you could offer our listeners today?
1: It's really a series of of logical steps. So number one, first and foremost. Food addiction is real. It's not a metaphor, it's not an analogy, it's a biological fact. Food addiction is real, but point number two, not everyone is equally affected. Some brains are just not affected and some brains are heavily affected. And for someone who is affected by food addiction, a structured plan of eating, including some foods that they just don't eat at all is going to be far more effective and ironically far more freeing and happiness producing than repeated attempts at moderation in all things, which is just, it just causes misery for those people. And then finally, societally, we have the uh, responsibility to understand that food addiction is real and that our society is suffering from our collective blindness about how our current food environment is affecting people. And just like we have banned cigarette commercials to kids and uh, in certain contexts, we need to ban certain kinds of food commercials and we need to protect the most vulnerable among us including people who are highly susceptible to process food addiction and including children who can't know mm. yet right and we need yeah. to really think about how we market foods to kids and how we feed kids uh or or it's just going to get worse and worse and worse before it gets better
0: Oh, Susan, I'm just so grateful for your time today and sharing some different perspectives with us and helping us open our eyes. I think what's most important now is for our listeners to learn more about you and where where can they go to get more information and to read more?
1: Absolutely. Well, I've got um several new york times best-selling books available everywhere they sell books and um brightlineeating.com it's a very very cost-effective monthly membership to join and i hold your hand through getting you started and setting up the automatic processes that lead your food and weight issue to just be solved finally so that's bright b-r-i-g-h-t line l-i-n-e brightlineeating.com that's where you can amazing. find me amazing
0: amazing susan thank you for your time thank you for everything and for coming on food for
1: thought today thanks Rihanna, and it's been a pleasure
0: thank you so much for listening this is the final episode of series 13 of food for thought i truly do hope that you've learned how our bodies really are as unique as our personalities And that this podcast has given you the confidence to enjoy life to the fullest. That's what it's for by following evidence-based advice, but pulling the information that you need and applying it to you. There is no one size fits all. And I'd just like to say a huge thank you to all of you that have chosen to listen because I obviously could not do this podcast without you. It's very difficult being a evidence-based nutritionist. And if you have the time, if you could leave us a review, that would be incredible because it means we'll hopefully be able to get this podcast out there to a wider audience and help more and more people. So if you want to learn more, please visit retrition.com and you can get more information about my new Sunday Times bestseller, The Science of Nutrition, my new book, I think and hope it's helping so many people and i know we can get it out there to more people if you want to book into the retrition clinic to see one of my wonderful nutritionists or dietitians explore healthy recipes and obviously so much more please visit the website retrition.com and follow me at retrition on instagram tiktok twitter facebook and youtube